Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch. Hi, everyone. I'm Bar, the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo. And together, we are two data nerds and entrepreneurs who decided to start a podcast to feature today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers, the podcast that interviews some of today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. I'm Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a self-identified data nerd, and I'm here with Bar. Bar, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Bar. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, the data reliability company. And I'm really thrilled to be here today with our guest, John Francis, First day in the role as Chief Data and Analytics Officer at General Motors, the industry-defining transportation company. Really excited to, to spend some time with you today, John, and hear your story. No, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to join you guys. And as you said, today is my first day with General Motors. Very excited about the opportunity. And I'm excited to have the conversation here as well. I've got 25 plus years of experience in this space, worked at some of the most iconic brands from Amazon and Microsoft and Nike and Starbucks. Uh, it's been quite a journey. And, you know, I think you guys would also probably say that over that time period that things have very evolved significantly, I guess, in terms of the role of data and analytics. So uh, it's been fun to be on that. And it's exciting to see where we are now as an industry. That's awesome. Well, John, I met you not long ago, but I could tell very quickly that you were someone who not only thought deeply about the industry and the category and what it means to build the data team, but also had a ton of experience, probably made a lot of mistakes as well, but made a lot of good decisions too, because otherwise you wouldn't have worked for all these great companies. So I'm excited to hear from you today and I'll throw you an easy one to get you warmed up, which is how did you first get interested in data and analytics? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it probably goes back to my time in college. And I'll be honest and vulnerable that, you know, I went to a small school, liberal arts school in Minnesota. I tried a number of different majors from econ to sociology to a couple other fields and nothing really resonated for me. And, and then I found myself getting into math and statistics. And I had an incredible professor who was a trained applied statistician and got into the field of teaching. And he really inspired me and motivated me. And, and I think for me, it was the application of statistics and how transferable it is to any number of industries. And I know I'm talking about statistics. And today we talk about AI and machine learning. And I think that's part of the interesting part for me, which is that just things that weren't possible back then in terms of the scale in the technology to really take what was grounded in statistics with machine learning and AI, which was mostly theoretical back then and, and now is, is, is significantly transformed what's possible just through advanced technology. So I think for me, I don't know if I could have predicted that future. I probably should have, but I think it was exciting to, to start in statistics. And I started in my career at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, but then I evolved into getting into more business applications, starting at, at Amazon. And really what was sort of the early days of big data and being able to do things like run experiments on the website, which was pretty novel at the time. This was, and I'm dating myself here, but early 2000s. And you know, I think for me, it was the opportunity to take what I was doing at Fred Hutchinson and thinking about clinical trials and randomized 
experiments and then being able to apply that same methodology and approach in a business setting was pretty exciting. And now, of course, things like website experiments are pretty commonplace and standard practice for any company with a digital presence. But at the time, we were really kind of breaking some new ground. So I think, again, that, that's kind of part of the journey, part of the fun for me. I love that. That's so funny, actually, for me. I also study stats and math. And my math professor taught me one of the sort of classes that made the most impression on me was math magic class, uh, where we use math and stats to create magic tricks. And I don't know why, like that had just a significant impact on my career in a way that's very hard to explain. So that totally resonates with me. Maybe digging into the early days a little bit more. For me, I think I had this like academic sense of what statistics and, and math means. And then I had actually the business application of it. And it was so different. I'm curious, what did it mean to do stats at companies like Expedia and Amazon back in the days early? Like, you know, this is like years ago, the tools were different, the frameworks were different, the problems were different. What was it like for you? Yeah, it's such a good question. And again, I think even back in the day, I think what the art of the possible in terms of what you could really do. And I still remember, you know, writing Perl scripts to process web logs, to do pretty basic inferential analytics. You could forget about having personalization run at scale. Those things just weren't really that possible. So, I mean, to answer your question, really, it was, you know, there were a lot of inferential analytics. So for us, for instance, taking a look at, if we wanted to run a different version of a detail page, for instance, uh, on the Amazon website and being able to randomize and split traffic so that 50% of the sessions got the new version, 50% got the old version. And, you know, really, and again, it, it's still surprising to think about it, but basically taking those web logs and processing them in a pretty manual way so that you can make some statistical inference to say whether version A or version B were better. That was pretty early days and, and also just being able to do more inferential modeling. So for instance, to if we wanted to understand what were the factors that drove conversion on Amazon, as an example, for a session to do inferential modeling. And really, I mean, you could think about it as, as logistic regression or other you know, basic inferential modeling just to understand what the most important predictors were for what drives conversion and then to take those drivers and then give them back to engineers and product owners to say, if page performance turns out to be one of the strongest predictors that we need to make sure from an engineering perspective that the site's loading quickly because we know it has a meaningful impact on, on page performance. So I think it was more, again, kind of more inferential just in the sense that, uh, you know, you have a, a statistician or, you know, an analyst doing that type of work and then making recommendations back to product teams to then implement. And certainly that all has evolved pretty significantly, but that's more of the rudimentary early days, at least based on my experience. I think there's um, actually a lot of teams that and a lot of uh, functions that still run like that for a number of reasons. And one of them is that they haven't really defined the role of a data team within their organization and the, the actual feedback loop and the workflows. So I'm curious, given the evolution you've seen in the space of all the platforms and all the different organizational models at the companies you've been at, 
How has this role of the data analyst or the data scientist evolved? And what are some of the most successful organizational models that you've seen for data teams? Yeah, I think this is such an important question. You know, I think from my experience, it's so easy for these data functions to fail. And believe me, I've tried a lot of different models and I've seen enough failure from this. Yeah, I think there's always the risk of, hey, we're a data team. We may be smarter than everyone else in the organization and, and we're building some cool WYSIWYG applications that we want to then drive into the business. That model is going to fail every time. And so I think for me, the evolution as I've thought about successful data teams It's making sure that you're building the right wiring in with business stakeholders and that you, first and foremost, the the technical and the analytic skills, those are there. Those are kind of table stakes. I think the thing that's really important is to build a muscle around really thinking like a business owner and prioritizing first and foremost what the business cares about, you know, whether it's driving revenue or mitigating costs in some way, and then really kind of immersing yourself sort of in the the shoes of a business owner and making sure that you have that deep awareness, not only of those business problems, but what the opportunity is. And there's a lot in that with just empathy and how you lead and how you engage. It has nothing to do with the technical skills. And I think in, in those situations, when you spend the time and you put that business owner hat on first, you not only earn credibility with that stakeholder, but you also just said, I think it opens your eyes to what the real opportunity is. And I think for me, if I think back to my time at Starbucks, for instance, again, I think my journey and the failure was probably a bit more of the WYSIWYG application and, hey, we've got some cool things. There's a, this is a huge opportunity. You can drive that in and, and really not making the meaningful progress that I wanted to. And then over time, I eventually joined our U.S. leadership team where we were in market twice a quarter, going into different stores and talking to store managers and customers and seeing where the real opportunities and pain points were. And then, again, as I said, it it was only then that, one, earning the credibility for these folks to say, hey, this guy's really in it with us. But then, two, for me to really look clearly to see the types of applications we could be building and where the opportunities were, what these leaders cared about. So I, I think for me, making sure, I know that was a long a long answer to your question, but it's important to think about the role of of being a business owner first and foremost, and then and then thinking about bringing those data and technical skills to bear. Yeah, I love the importance and placed on on really starting with a business outcome. It's such a simple insight, but I think almost every function suffers from not focusing enough on business outcomes. Strangely, even though it's business and everyone's chasing an outcome. But it's interesting and kind of the more technical it becomes or the more creative it becomes, the harder it is to focus on that. On that note, I had a quick follow-up question, which is where, you know, maybe you can take us through each of your jobs. Well, where did the data function report into at each of the roles that you had and where does it report into now? Yeah, it's a good question. So and you kind of see every flavor of this, I would say. So at GM, I report into a strategy and innovation organization. At Starbucks, it was up to the chief operating officer. I worked for Ros Brewer, who, of course, now she's the CEO of, of Walgreens. Nike, it, it sat within a marketing organization. 
And even though it serves a broader remit than that. So really it's, it's one of those things that I think you actually, and you know, I think my perspective on this, it actually could sit just about anywhere. And, you know, I think what doesn't change is just the ethos and kind of the mindset of the organization, irrespective of where you work. And again, it comes back to just how you wire and stitch in with the business in the right way. I've seen it sit with CFOs. You know, I've seen it go directly to CEOs. Like I said, the CEO at, at Starbucks and, you know, I'm in a strategy organization now. You know, I think that the thing that is consistent is just making sure you've got the right operating model just in terms of how you work with the business. And again, back to that mindset and ethos. Makes sense. Curious, John, just to follow up on that, you, you talked a lot about sort of different modes of failure. I imagine a lot of that sort of dictated in the first 90 days, right? And in the actions that, that you're doing. So curious kind of now, you know, at this point of time, what are the first few things that you're going to be doing in your new role to kind of set you and your team for success? And what are the things that you sort of recommend other folks because lots of folks, I think, are in your shoes, right? We've seen a lot of change in, a lot, in the last few years, especially in kind of data-related roles. And lots of folks are asking themselves, like, how do I make a quick impact in the first 90 days? How do I tie myself to value? Um, curious, what would be your take for that? Yeah, and, and like, there's actually a lot of turnover in these roles right now. And I believe me, I know a lot of folks in the industry, and it, it's hard, and there is no magic formula Every company is different, especially when you start to think about these older organizations who you may not have data in their DNA. For me, I think there's a couple of things that I feel like, and yeah, and I'm even reflecting on this now as, you know, this is my first day here at GM, but one is really just to, I think you kind of alluded to it, but what are those quick wins where you can show attributable impact based on what you're doing? And it doesn't always have to be some fancy machine learning or AI application. It can just be simply we're able to generate some incremental revenue through a set of recommendations or analytics that weren't there before. So I think for me, it's kind of mapping out where those opportunities might be. And, you know, I think I'll be doing a lot of relationship building. As I said, I think that will be important here just to really help me understand the business, but then, and what those opportunities are, but then also finding those advocates who, yeah, even though GM is, you know, an old company and has probably, probably have folks there who, and again, if I think about my time at Nike or Starbucks, you've got people who've been there for a long time who probably have made, have done pretty well in the absence of data or analytics and, and don't think they need it. So I think, you know, it's important to find those advocates who understand the value and are willing to partner. And I think most importantly, are willing to kind of test and learn because I think that's the other thing that I've learned over the years is there, there's usually a reluctance to try something different. And this whole idea of fail fast, well, you see it all day long in, in tech and digital organizations. That's not necessarily the case in other companies that may not have grown up in that way. So I think, one, finding those advocates, not only that are willing to try, but are okay with failure, obviously... The failure, it's not celebrating the failure, it's the, the learnings from the failure. So I think I think that's one. And then two, how do you build a culture around data and analytics? I think about just the role almost of I would call it the CMO of data and analytics and making it fun and kind of demystifying 
what you do. I, I had a whole transformation organization at, at Starbucks. One of their primary responsibilities was how do we set up different forums, learning sessions, you know, podcasts that we ran for our internal audience, videos, just to make it fun and get people excited about what we're doing. And, and I think there, again, I think comes back to demystifying because I, I think there's also this allure of, um, hey, the analytics folks are on some pedestal and they're smarter than everyone else. I, I think that will backfire every time. So just building that culture that's fun, having a bunch of folks who are really humble and hungry to learn about what the business, you know, what you can do for the business and how you can best support. I think that that all goes a long way. So, I, you know, those are the things I'm thinking about right now. Makes a lot of sense. I was going to actually ask if you feel intimidated in any way by the fact that a lot of the companies you've worked at so far I think most of them are digital first. I mean, I think Starbucks, you could argue, is hybrid, but there's so much that people do through the app. I mean, as soon as I found the app, I just never went back to human interaction because, you know, humans are strange. <laughs> but no, I'm joking. But but I think GM, more than any company you've worked at, there's so much data that I'm assuming you're going to have to find, you're going to have to source, you're going to have to merge. And I think a lot of the big issues with data functions come from the fact that a lot of these data sets don't really communicate with each other. They're not collected in the same way at the same time, et cetera. So how are you thinking about it? Yeah, look, I think that's that problem and whether it's a digital first company or not has existed every company I've worked at, which is you've got these artificial silos with the data. And I think for me, the way that I think about it and the opportunity is we're a consumer-centric brand and we're building vehicles for our customers. And there's a lot of competition, obviously. And thinking about, we have this incredible set of data and artifacts. And even just think about your own experience with vehicles. There's so much telemetry off the vehicles from the experience itself of you know buying a car and going into the repair shop there's all these touch points. And for me, I think about the consumer journey first and foremost. And how do you make delightful experiences for consumers? What And what could be at any point along the journey, whether you're buying a car or getting trying to get it repaired or selling, I think we could all agree that there are many points of that journey that there's friction. And so I think for me, the part that I'm excited about is thinking about how you could use all this incredible telemetry to create delightful experiences that make it so that it's either should be painless and maybe even joyful in some cases. I think that, you know, as I think about the auto industry, I don't think anyone's doing that quite well. And so I think that's the opportunity. But I think to your point, I think it does mean breaking down some silos and there's probably some internal politics that I don't even know about yet where you know one team's got the telemetry off the vehicle another team's got access to all the dealer data you got to break all those walls down but i think if you start first and foremost with storytelling around what's possible and what you could do and how you could create these experiences and i think then you can start to weave in and and start to build a case for integration of data to be able to unlock some of these things. And, and maybe it's not fully productionalized out of the gate, but maybe you can get 
some data integrated and, and again, go do some testing and see what's possible and see if it, it's something that resonates for consumers. I, I think for me, then it really comes back to starting with those consumer journeys and also then how you storytell around those journeys to the organization and get other people excited about the art of the possible in terms of what you could do with the data. Bar, do you want to do the follow-up or I have so many more questions to jump? I can tell you do. <laughs> yeah, well, it. you know, you were talking about storytelling and actually one of the questions that I was about to jump into is, you said a lot of things I love, storytelling, customer journey. You know, ultimately as a company, we focus on understanding the customer journey through content and content is such a big connective tissue that informs that customer journey, especially when you're buying a higher consideration product like a car or a financial tool or whatever. I guess I'm curious, as you think about your own storytelling skills, I have kind of a two-part question. First one is, what's the hardest thing to explain to non-data people about data? And two is, how did you gain these storytelling skills? Or did you always have them? Or was it more like trial and error until you figured out how to convince people that what you do is important? Yeah, well, I have the advantage. I would say between Nike and then Starbucks, working at two two cultures, frankly, that were built on storytelling. And so I will admit it did not come organically to me. And, you know, and I was going into Nike coming out of organizations that storytelling was more, or excuse me, the, the data and the understanding of data was more probably woven in into even at a leadership level. I think people just natively got it more. And so I was, certainly was not organically a great storyteller. And having that experience of, of working at a company like Nike, for instance, and you know, we used to joke at, at Nike, like you, if you showed more than one number on a slide, you'd probably get your hand slapped. And that, you know, that's probably a bit of an extreme, but it was, I think my boss at the time had said that he'd seen better presentations from junior data scientists than he did for board presentations at Walmart where he came from before. Just, that's you know, awesome. yeah, a real bias towards simplicity. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think so that, I think that was a key learning for me was keeping it simple and really in anchoring it back, like anchoring the analytics back to either the business opportunity or, or something about the consumer, consumer experience or the, the journey, because that's so much of, whether it's Starbucks or Nike, the thing that resonates for the leadership and is really that kind of experiential piece. And, and so how do you land the analytics in a way that, that actually truly support that narrative? And again, as you said, if you've got that one data point that's really going to stick in people's head, that's what you really want to land. It can be frustrating because obviously what we do is so much more nuanced than that. There's rarely ever one data point or one insight that would do the justice in terms of, you know, what the opportunity is. But then there's a big part of it is, is just how you think about curation. So I think for me that, you know, that was probably the biggest learning is really curation, keeping it simple, making sure that, you know, the analytics is, is grounded in the narrative of, of what you're really trying to land. I love that. It's, you know, less is more, I guess, especially when it comes to data and especially when it comes to presenting it to non-data folk, right? So I I like that. You're a data nerd, you're a data scientist. 
I'm not asking you because I think you have a crystal ball, although if you do, that'd be great. Or maybe you do tarot cards. But as you look at some of the data and the mixed signals of, of kind of where the economy is and where we're headed as a society, what are some of the things that make you excited about the data function and the role it can play? And is it changing at all how you think about the data function in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think for me, and uh, you know, I was seeing signs of this at, at Starbucks. I think the thing that has me most excited is the promise of AI and machine learning. And like, I think there's so much hype around this. And you know, I, I even hate using the word words AI because it probably means so many different things to so many different people. But you know, I think what I was seeing in real time was the ability to, to take what were processes that you know we were doing for years, decades, that humans are just not good at. And I'll, I'll give a few examples that we started to deploy machine learning in a way that lets the humans be good at what they're good at and let the machines do the work where, of course, that can create an optimization. So for instance, automated inventory fulfillment at Starbucks, where you used to have a barista a few times a day would have to go into the back office or the, the back of the store and count how many breakfast sandwiches and croissants and, and go in and manually figure out how many to order. Well, we were deploying AI and machine learning to do that automated fulfillment so that then that barista could focus on engaging with customers and not, you know, not being in the back, back of the store that's just one simple example. Another is predictive maintenance, where we were deploying espresso machines that were connected and we were getting telemetry off of them. And in a way that before, if an espresso machine broke, you know, there's typically two in a store. If you've got a busy store, you're down to one. You've got, all of a sudden got really long lines and you've got pissed off customers. You've got stressed out baristas. And a barista would have to get off the espresso line and actually get on the phone and raise a ticket and you know get a truck rolled out that maybe days later could come and fix it. Well, with predictive maintenance, you actually can take signals off the espresso machine and say, look, I think you know, there's a high probability here this espresso machine is going to fail within the next couple days. And then proactively raise a ticket and have a maintenance guy come out and take a look at it. So I guess for me, it's those types of opportunities where, you know, no one should be nervous about you know, their jobs going away. This came up a lot with marketing organizations in the past where you could also argue that the role of machine learning plays in optimization. And you know, you've got a customer that you can engage with, with an offer through a number of different channels. Do they get a promotion or not? They, you know, different versions of creative. Those are historically decisions that marketers have made that we were starting to test and learn to say, well, actually, it's just an optimization problem. Again, that's not to say the role of the marketer is, is not important. That couldn't be farther from the truth. I think the way I think about it is what the marketer can put into the engine, like where the creativity should come is what are those next set of constructs or offers that we should be thinking about that can feed into an optimization engine? Or again, in the case of the predictive maintenance or automated fulfillment, those are tasks that no one should want to do. They're not joyful. Those are things that machines are going to be better at. So 
I think sometimes when people think about this stuff, they immediately think about machines putting people out of work. I don't think of it that way. I think it's more just around, again, back to the point of letting humans be good at what they do and let machines take care of the rest. I, I think that's the part I'm probably most excited about. Awesome. Love it. This has been great. We're going to shift gears on to some uh, rapid fire questions just to wrap up. Sure. I hope you're ready. Uh, yep. <laughs> actually, a first one. What's your favorite GM model? <laughs> Are you putting me on the spot here? <laughs> um, I'm interested in Cadillac. In particular, they've got a couple of electric vehicles that are coming out that are pretty amazing. And so I'm already in line for their SUV, which I think is, they're starting to roll out right now. It's called the Lyric. It's it's pretty nice. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be drinking the Kool-Aid on on electric as soon as I can get my hands on, on that. <laughs> can I, I just want to intervene and say the first car that I ever drove in the U.S., was a pink Chevy Blazer from the 70s. And as an immigrant, that was like my most American moment. And I still want to buy a Chevy Blazer. And I, I have no idea what to do with it because I live in New York, but I'm going to buy one soon at some point. And it has to be pink. <laughs> That's awesome. What's your favorite book? Favorite book? I, you know, I, I actually just read Think Again. And I don't know, you know, that's an Adam Grant book. I, I think for me... I love the spirit of it. And as, I think as I start to come into these, you know, whether it's GM or Starbucks and this idea of breaking your sort of status quo thinking on how you approach problems, how you think about opportunities, there's a lot in there. And it's, it's not only a good read, but it's also good for teams. And I wouldn't be surprised if I have my, my new leadership team here do a bit of a book club. And again, I, I think it, it's refreshing to, to think through how you can tackle problems in a different way. And he's got some amazing illustrative examples of that in his book. Awesome. We'll add to my list. Did you have a pandemic TV binge? (laughs) Pandemic TV binge. You know, for some reason, I've been working through some of the the best Oscar-winning movies from the 70s. And I don't know why I got onto that, but I think just working through some of the greats, Back from the 70s, obviously, like things like the Godfather series, number of other movies. So, yeah, I think that was it. I didn't really get into any Netflix shows. It was more just kind of old classic movies. Yeah, it's a high quality answer, John. Thank you so much, John. This was awesome. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Good luck at GM. It's a big job in a really impactful company that's changing the world. And I'm a big fan and I look forward to becoming a a customer soon. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Hit me up when you're ready to buy. I will. Yeah. Hopefully you give me a discount. (laughs) I'll buy. All right. I'll see you guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Category Makers and Wall Breakers with Anda Gonska and Bar Moses. Anda is co-founder and CEO of Notch, the content intelligence platform that enables brands to connect their digital content investments to business outcomes. Bar Moses is co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo with a mission to accelerate the world's adoption of data by reducing data downtime. Visit notch.com, that's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com for more information and to listen to more episodes.